The often quoted words of Edmund Burke touching the value of history, you've heard it before, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, is, I think, sadly heard more than it's heeded, and I think that applies as well to a significant section of modern Christendom. I think it's ironic that that would be the case, that Christians would be guilty of not heeding the lessons of history, because the book that they hold in their hands from week to week is largely a book that's comprised of sacred history, within which are the best lessons that are available if one just reads and seeks to understand what history has taught us before so that we're not doomed to repeat it. As an example of the sort of lessons that any believer can avail him or herself of, I give you the following. This particular historical event occurred in the mid-5th century B.C. among the Jewish remnant community, pilgrims lately come from Persia, but now back in the Promised Land. Within that community, there was a certain Jewish prophet by the name of Shemaiah ben Deliah, a rather sing-songy name, but as a matter of fact, there are a number of Shemaiahs within the biblical records, so you might want to distinguish this particular prophet using that sing-songy name and come up with Shemaiah the liar, because he was happy to hire himself out to the highest bidder. And there were two men that were able to reach the apostate prophet's price. Their names were Tobiah, who Nehemiah, with a bit of sarcasm, calls a Ammonite. He was evidently also of Jewish descent, so we'll call him a Jewish Ammonite. Tobiah was one of the men. Sanballat, the Horonite, the Samaritan Horonite, was the other man that was able to hire Shemaiah to betray King Artaxerxes' cupbearer, now in Jerusalem overseeing the remnant community. And if that text isn't familiar to you, let me just read a small portion of it out of Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning in the 10th verse. Nehemiah relays how he went to the house of one Shemaiah, the son of Deliah. And when they were privately together, this prophet said to Nehemiah, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come to slay thee. They meaning, well, here would be Tobiah and Sambalat, those Samaritans and those peoples around the general area where the remnant community were seeking to reestablish God's work, but they were opposing the establishing of God's work. They were opposing the building up of God's people. In our context, it would be the establishing of God's church, the building up of a testimony within this particular area. Shemaiah says, why don't you go in the temple? Why don't you go hide? Why don't you close the door and make sure it's secure because they're going to try to come by night to slay thee. But Nehemiah says, 
Should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And lo, I perceive, Nehemiah says, that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. Imagine someone in a political position, here even a, within a prophetic ministry, that was able to be bought off in one way or another to give bad counsel to the man of God who was seeking under difficult circumstances to rebuild or to strengthen God's people. He realized that this was a trap, and he says, Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so, take his advice and sin, that they might have matter of evil report, that they might reproach me. Warren Wearsby, the relatively well-known biblical commentator, author of the B series, by which he designates various books of the Bible and extracts one of the primary lessons out of these books and then places some sort of active thought in front of it and says, be obedient or be joyful or be hopeful. When he gets to the book of Nehemiah, he entitles it, Be Determined. And Wearsby has this to say about Nehemiah's strength and his determination and by the grace of God, his ability to see the bad counsel of a, of a so-called prophet of the Lord and to not fall into the trap of fear and not allow himself to be locked up in the house of God and not be able to continue his ministry. Wearsby writes, The enemy's main purpose was to generate fear in the heart of Nehemiah and his workers, knowing that fear destroys faith and paralyzes life. And then Wearsby goes on to quote, a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. He says, Adolf Hitler wrote, quote, Mental confusion, contradiction of feeling, indecisiveness, panic, these are our weapons. I would submit to you, dear brothers and sisters, there is indeed nothing new under the sun. And if God's church would read their own history, then they would begin to gain at least the beginnings of some sort of bearing, some sort of orientation as to the type of characters that can be around them, both within the political sphere, as were Tobiah and Sambalat, and even within the confessing people of God, as was Shemaiah the liar, who was bought off in one way or another to give bad counsel. Well, the history lesson is right there in front of you. Nehemiah says, if I were to respond in fear, a man like myself who is a leader of a remnant community that has a nail in this place, it might not be much, but it's something you can hang the rest of the work on. And therefore, I'm going to continue this work by the grace of God, and I'm not going to allow the enemies of the Lord to shut it down. I want to continue with that sort of motivating historical lesson as a preamble to our study 
I want to continue in our investigations of this particular feature of Abraham's life, the feature of famine. And while I suppose we could entitle this study, Facing Famine and Fleeing, Part 3, yet I believe that we will be able to conclude our investigations this afternoon. And I want to leave with more of a positive sort of reflection. So I'm going to entitle this study, Facing Fear and Standing Firm. Facing Fear and Standing Firm. Essentially, dear brothers and sisters, the primary orientation that will describe how we can face fear and stand firm can be expressed in this way. It is the choice of worship over worry. Now, it's interesting that even in the life of Abraham, he very obviously came to that particular conviction in due time in his own spiritual development. For in Genesis 22 and verse 5, we read that Abraham, when he is at the foot of Mount Moriah, prepared to ascend the mountain and offer his only son Isaac, he says to the young men, one of whom I like to think was Eliezer, he says, Abide you here with the mules, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Well, there were all sorts of reasons for Abraham's heart to be filled with anxiety and with worry and all sorts of struggles with how would this work ever go on? How would God's purpose in my life ever be fulfilled if I follow through with this commitment to God and this particular command of the Lord as I understand it? You know, this will probably bring an end to Isaac. But that wasn't the way that Abraham looked at it. Abraham had grown to a place in his heart where his God was not so small that he couldn't replace worry with worship and ascend that mountain in confidence, not knowing how the Lord would deliver him, but knowing that God is sovereign. He has a plan. This must work out. I will stay committed to what God has told me to do, and I will not allow the fears within or even the suggestions of those that are without to deter me and to get me to hide in fear when I should be building the house of God. I give you as well the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a feature of Luke's gospel that's called Luke's Jerusalem journey. It chronicles the last days of Jesus' ministry prior to his crucifixion. He leaves the region of Galilee and he makes his way toward Jerusalem. This particular section of Luke's gospel begins in earnest in the ninth chapter and in the 51st verse where we read, And it came to pass when the time was come that Jesus should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. In the 13th chapter and in the 22nd verse, this journey continues, and we're told that Jesus went through the cities and the villages, that is, within Galilee and then just outside of Galilee, teaching and journey, journeying toward Jerusalem. 
In the 31st verse of the 13th chapter, and this is the context I really want to draw your attention to, we read the same day there came certain of the Pharisees. Perhaps one of them was named Shemaiah. Maybe another was named Tobiah. Perhaps a third was named Sanballat. But certain of the Pharisees came saying to him, Get thee out and depart hence. For Herod, the Tetrarch, the government, the leader, will kill you if you continue in your ministry. And Jesus said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I'll be completed. In other words, Go and tell, remember with me, of course, that with Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 13, the Son of God is very familiar with using animal imagery to, be, to, to depict the character of nations and kings and political rulers. And you might think that the idea of a fox only captures the sense of Herod's slyness and his, uh, his duplicity. But when you understand the biblical picture of a fox, you also realize that what Jesus is effectively saying is, go and tell that insignificant little animal that I have a ministry to complete. It's going to take me three days to complete, and I am not stopping until I have done the will of God. Now that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is also a part of biblical history. Those who do not read history, who do not know their sacred history, are doomed to repeat the failures of the characters within that history that do not respond well to God. And so what I'm saying to you is, Right here in the biblical text, we have the example of Nehemiah. We have the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who understood that he can only serve one master, that we will consider the requests of the governmental leaders. We are generally in the habit of rendering obedience so as to manifest our goodwill toward men, and so as to be in a position to shed our light and to manifest our peaceable disposition. But at the end of the day, we know that we serve one master, and our commitment is solely and only to this one master. And with Nehemiah and with Jesus, we say, go and tell those government leaders, whatever their threats may be, they are insignificant to us. We will serve our God for as long as the Lord has a next step for us to take. And that is exactly what Jesus does. And it is a very significant example for us, brothers and sisters. There is a time to address the political powers, certainly without vitriol and without belligerence. But I do want you to hear that both Nehemiah and Jesus, they describe 
accurately the characteristic of the threat that was against them. And it's important for God's people to understand what the nature of the threat is and and to be able to describe it effectively so that they can understand that this is not something that God is behind. Nehemiah perceived this wasn't the Lord that was sending this prophet to him. This was a deception. So I have two primary ideas that will intersect with Abraham's life that will help our hearts to get to the place of replacing worry with worship. The first of which is develop devotion through deeper divinity. That idea might sound a little bit obscure at first hearing, but I do believe it's a very important principle, and it's indeed that which actually occurred in Abraham's life. Remember the proverb, chapter 9 and verse 10, that reads as follows, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. I remember fondly, many years ago, reading Tozier's book by that title. It's one of the first books that I read as a young Christian, some 35 or more years ago. I was saved about 40 years ago. And I have a quotation from Tozier's work, which does speak about fear and how fear can be overcome by having a deeper wisdom and understanding and knowledge of who God is. The knowledge of the holy is this idea of understanding the awe and the depth of Almighty God. Tozier writes the following, Fear is the painful emotion that arises in the thought that we may be harmed or made to suffer. This fear persists while we are subject to the will of someone who does not desire our well-being. The moment we come under the protection of one of good will, fear is cast out. Sometimes people just hope that the one who will be of good will is the person who's presently opposing you. You know, it's the government leaders or it's, you know, your spouse or it's a neighbor or it's someone else in your life, but that's not always the way it works. Hold on, there's help coming. Let me finish Tozier's quote. The world is full of enemies, and as long as we are subject to the possibility of harm from these enemies, fear is inevitable. As long as we are in the hands of chance, as long as we look for hope to the law of averages, as long as we must trust for survival to our ability to outthink or outmaneuver the enemy, we have every good reason to be afraid and fear has torment. But to know that love is of God and to enter into the secret place, leaning upon the arm of the Beloved with a capital B, this and only this can cast out fear. Let a man become convinced that nothing can harm him and instantly for him all fear goes out of the universe the nervous reflex, the natural revulsion to physical pain may be felt sometimes, but the deep torment of fear is gone forever. God is love and God is sovereign. 
His love dis disposes him to desire our everlasting welfare and his sovereignty enables him to secure it. Nothing can hurt a good man. And Tozier ends this edifying portion with a line out of Luther's hymn that sounds like this, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Well, with such examples as Martin Luther in Jesus and Nehemiah manifesting the courage to stand firm in the face of political opposition, you would think that these historical lessons would make their mark on the hearts of God's people more so than it seems to me that they do. But coming back to Abraham's life, I want you to see with me how divinity is developed in his experience. And the place we'll start is back in the familiar text of Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. That's when Abram enters into the promised land and receives a intimate or an intimate theophany in Shechem. And the text reads that the Lord appeared unto Abraham. And when you read that text, you might think, well, isn't that great, you know? Yahweh gave his name to Abraham, and that's where Abraham learns who this God is in a more intimate way. And he receives this tetragrammaton, this sacred name, and that must have been quite, you know, a drawing in of Abraham to a deeper understanding of who this God is. You know, these names, by the way, even within the pagan cultures, are very significant in their religious orientation. Some way or another, you have to understand what the nature of these gods are. Sometimes they were the god of wisdom or the god of love or the god of the earth or whatever, and you needed to learn who these gods were to understand what they could do for you. It's a pretty categorical name, isn't it? I am. And it's intended to be that way. That is the great revelation of Almighty God. But as it turns out, that is not what happened in Abraham's experience. When he was in Shechem, he did not receive that depth of a divine awareness that his God is the great I Am. What exactly he received, I don't know for sure. Some sort of communication, some sort of visitation, some sort of encounter that was certainly intended to strengthen his walk with his God, to deepen the relationship, but it was not the giving of that covenant name. That would not occur in his life at this time. I know that because of what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, and you can be sure that God is telling the truth. We read in Exodus chapter 6 in verse 2, and God spake unto Moses, and there the Hebrew for God is Elohim. God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am Yahweh. This is the covenant name, the four consonants, yod Hey vav Hey. I am Yahweh. And I appeared unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of King James, God Almighty in the Hebrew, El Shaddai. But by my name, and it's a pity that the King James translates here the covenant name with the 
um, hybrid word Jehovah, but we won't digress into a discussion of that unfortunate circumstance. It's the same Hebrew word that is used in the second verse. He says, and here's the thing to note, but by my name, Yahweh, was I not known to them. So what occurs in Shechem is an appearance without an appellation. It's an appearance without the feature of God giving him this deeper insight into his nature by passing on the name to Abraham. But God does eventually bring a deeper understanding of who he is into Abraham's life at a very important time in Abraham's experience. I want to draw your attention to this occurrence. It happens in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17 is the chapter within which God appears again, like he did in Shechem. You'll see that language in just a moment. God appears again now to Abraham. And on this occasion, he discloses something more about who he is by disclosing one of his sacred names to Abraham. Read with me in Genesis 17 and verse 1. And when Abraham was 90 years and 9, the Lord, and here again it's Yahweh, but that's for your appreciation. Abraham doesn't know him by this name yet, but the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. I am El Shaddai. I am the one who is omnipotent to take my lead from Jerome's Latin Vulgate, but it's a fair representation of what El Shaddai means. There is, of course, a long discussion about the precise meaning of this Hebrew word like there is about everything in religion. But effectively, what it means is that God is the Almighty. He is the one who can overwhelm all opposition. And God is saying to Abraham, I am El Shaddai. And then look what he says, walk before me. Stay right here. Walk before me. Don't run away from me. Don't run from my presence. Don't run from your calling. Walk before me. And then this, be thou perfect. Tamin, become whole or mature. Develop, grow, be strengthened in your faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing the word of God. And here is a word for Abraham. I am El Shaddai. I can overcome anything that is opposing your life. Now, remarkably, even with this theophany that Abraham experiences, in the 17th verse of this same chapter, and I think I relayed to you, but you will see this very clearly in a moment, the 17th chapter is the chapter within which God is renewing to Abraham after 24 years. This is 24 years after Genesis chapter 12. 24 years after Abraham had his initial appearance in this sort of um, profoundness in Shechem, 24 years after Abram goes down to Egypt, all these various features of what occurred 24 years ago, now in Genesis chapter 17, God is renewing to Abraham 
his promise to give him a seed. This is a 24-year-old promise. You understand what I'm saying to you? And he, he comes and he reveals himself again to him. And he says, Abraham, I'm Al Shaddai. And even in the experience of that theophany and the deeper divinity that God is making available to him, we read in the 17th verse, Abraham fell upon his face and he laughed. He laughed in his heart. And he said, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? I think it's more commonly remembered that Sarah laughed in the tent door when she heard the promise, but her husband laughed before she did. This is a remarkable arrangement of events that are intended for us to learn from history. Because God went to the effort to give Abraham a deeper divinity and instead of drinking that in, so it would enable him to stand firm against any sort of fears or circumstances to deepen his walk with the Lord so that he could stand against doubts, Abraham responds with a chuckle. He responds with a somewhat lightheartedness within him. Instead of really looking into the holiness of God, looking into the fear of the Lord and understanding who this almighty God is and letting God reveal to him. God needs to be able to reveal himself to us, brothers and sisters. He is the great I am. He is what he is. And in order for us to walk with him, he needs to reveal himself to us gradually. And he does that within the contexts of our various trials and circumstances within which he will show us that he is mighty and powerful to meet our needs. But we have to walk before him. We have to walk with him. And we have to believe that God is wanting to perfect us and make us perfect. You see, the reason why this is so relevant is because I would argue that Abraham is facing presently a more difficult, a more challenging, a more emotionally laden trial than he faced 24 years ago in the Negev. But in its essence, it is of the same sort of features. The difficulty here is that his wife's womb is barren and seed does not produce the fruit of the promise that he would love to see. There is a famine in Sarah's belly. It's not a famine of food, but it's a famine of the fulfillment of God's promise. It was very, very important to Abraham that he receive a child. I mean, the reason he left Ur of Chaldee he left Haran was because this God met him and gave him a promise. And at the center of it was a child. And he is in the middle of a famine, of a drought, of no seed growing within the belly of Sarah's womb. And God has just revealed to him, Abram, I'm El Shaddai. I overcome any opposition. There is nothing too hard for God. But how is Abraham ever going to come to faith? 
about that. How are you ever going to really believe that? You see, you might think that it's asking too much of Abraham not to go down into Egypt when he faces famine because that's a very hard trial to process and so on. He's relatively new in the walk, but he had to trust God to give him a child supernaturally. And again, I say to you that if you're Abraham, then what's much more important to you is that you receive this seed of a child. I mean, it would be one thing for God to call you into the promised land and for him to manifest the promised seed. And so he gives you Isaac and Isaac bears Jacob and you begin to see your family develop. But somewhere along the line, there's a famine in the land. And, and that's obviously, you know, a problem. And it may be a little bit hard to sort out. But what I'm trying to say is if you're thinking of which trial is more difficult, then if God gave you the seed and this project was moving forward, but you wind up dying of hunger in the promised land, that's a troubling circumstance, and I'm not making light of it. That was the sort of thing Abraham had to grapple with 24 years ago. But I would argue that while it might not be the values of modern man, it would be a representation of Abraham's values that it would have been much harder for him to have occupied the promised land for many, many years and to over all that time, fill his belly with all sorts of food, die with a belly full of food, but with an empty womb in Sarah and no child to die without ever being able to overcome the famine of the belly of Sarah's womb. Well, you reflect upon how these things are working together and I believe that you'll see the mercy of Almighty God in this picture. I believe you'll see that God is working in Abraham's life. He is seeking to stretch his faith in order to overcome a natural famine of food so that he will not laugh when God says to him, there might be a famine in Sarah's belly, but I can produce the seed supernaturally and I want you to believe me, Abraham. I want you to set an example of faith that others will follow. And you know with me that eventually Abraham does mature to that faith. And I am arguing that he gets there by God revealing himself in a deeper way to his heart. And so for ourselves as well, brothers and sisters, in order for us to stand firm in the face of fear, we need to allow God to develop a deeper divinity, a deeper revelation of the knowledge of the holy in our life. Now when we think about this famine in Sarah's belly. There were lessons that clearly God wanted Abraham to come to terms with. One of which was, don't run to Egypt in order to meet your needs. Look to Almighty God. Look to El Shaddai. And isn't it remarkable when we think about how does Abraham respond to the famine of Sarah's womb? Abraham responds to the 
famine of Sarah's womb in the exact same way he responded 24 years ago when facing the famine of the womb of the earth. He runs down to Egypt to get the seed developing and producing. If you don't know what I'm referring to here, let me read it to you out of Genesis chapter 16, verse 3. I know that Abram's wife is involved, but Abraham agrees with her counsel and her suggestions. This is very unlike, incidentally, that's why I gave you these two biblical examples at the outset of the message. This is very unlike the way Nehemiah responded in the face of fear. It is very unlike the way that Jesus responded when given counsel to hide from Herod. He said, I will not flinch in the face of this fear. I will stand in faith in God's promises and I will believe that El Shaddai will oversee everything. Exactly Jesus' terminology. You tell that fox that all that he's just a little sly animal. My father is the almighty God. I'm going to tell you the way that this is going to go. I am going to minister today and I'm going to minister tomorrow and the third day I'll be perfected. And so he understands that circumstances can change in our lives. Amen. So that they can arrest him. He understands that that can happen, but it's not going to happen until God allows it. And that's where Jesus' faith is. And, and what I'm saying is, in Genesis chapter 16, in the face of the famine of Sarah's womb, we read, And Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abraham had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and he gave her to her husband Abraham to be his wife, and he went in onto Hagar. He runs down to Egypt. And she conceived, and when she saw that she conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarah said unto Abraham, listen to this, my wrong be upon thee. My wrong be upon thee. I hold you somewhat accountable for the unfolding of these events. I'm just showing you that there's confusion in the chosen family, that there's the roots of division and confusion, and they're not fulfilling the call that God had upon their life. As we continue to read, I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. But Abraham said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hands. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And this is how the chosen family blesses the nations. And when Sarah dealt hardly with Hagar, she fled from her face, and it's left to the Lord to show mercy to Hagar. It's left to the Lord to witness to Hagar and, and, and manifest his mercy and kindness and to say, I'm... I'm the God of the universe. I, yes, have called Abraham and Sarah, and no, you can't replace them because they're a chosen family, but they should be witnessing to you, and they should be walking in faith and gradually learning how to come into a deeper relationship with me so that they can be a light to you, but they're not growing in faith, and they're not facing their fears and letting the deeper divinity develop their hearts so that they can be a more profound witness. And as a result, they're manifesting various works of the flesh. 
And as a consequence, there's confusion in every evil work. This is not the wisdom that is from above. And so the Lord has to go find Hagar. We won't get into all of those details, but I will relate to you that just as we'll see ultimately in the bigger picture of the patriarchal story, remember, of course, we're looking at patriarchal Laodiceanism and Joseph, the son that changes everything. We are preparing our hearts for appreciating that story, the story of Joseph's journey, because ultimately we'll be able to juxtapose Joseph's experiences and his acts of faith and his waiting on the Lord and being of good courage and just staying put and letting the Lord meet every need supernaturally in his timing and his way and just waiting on the Lord, letting the word try him until the word has done its work and then he can rise up and manifest a powerful testimony of El Shaddai to the, all the nations. But presently, this is not happening. This is just the general confusion of human experience being visited, visited upon the nations by the likes of the chosen family. And so, as I said, you know, I guess I already said that the Lord has to go seek out Hagar. But what I want to say now is that just as Abraham set a bad precedent in running down to Egypt in the face of famine, and we saw how that became an inclination, nearly an addiction of Israel nationally throughout their entire history. They keep running to the nations to solve their problems, and it becomes a habit that's with us to this day. Similarly, this choice of Abraham ultimately, Sarah's involved, but she isn't getting good leadership from Abraham, right? Because he says, come on down to Egypt with me and lie for me and all the rest of it. This choice of Abraham to go to Egypt to fix the famine of Sarah's womb, you understand what I mean, go down to Hagar, who they probably received as one of Pharaoh's gifts when they were down because he received female servants. So think of that. Think of how demonstrably unhelpful that choice was because they wound up with Hagar most likely. And now he goes down down to Egypt to solve this problem. And that act gave birth to what we could call the ancient hatred that has hampered the history of the chosen family to this day. Who did that? Abraham. I'm not going out of my way, dear brothers and sisters, to denigrate Abraham. What we're seeking to do is juxtapose these features of Abraham's life so that we can see that we are to walk in the steps of the faith of Abraham and to understand what are steps of faith and what are not steps of faith. Ishmael was born of that union. So the second principle that I want to share with you today that will help us to choose worship over worry the first being develop devotion through deeper divinity. The second follows very logically as a consequence of that experience in the Word and in communion with God and through ministry and so on. And that is deploy your divinity in times of difficulty. Deploy it. Use it. 
believe that this deeper divinity actually means something. That the knowledge of the holy really is understanding. That God really is communicating himself to you. In other words, in Abraham's life, it should have looked like this. Do not doubt El Shaddai. Don't doubt him. But he laughed. Somebody suggested that Abraham should trust God in this physical need within Sarah's belly. And what did Abraham do? What so many do to this day? God reveals himself as Yahweh, I'm your provider. Yahweh, I'm your righteousness. Yahweh, I'm your healer. And what Abraham does is he laughs. And then his wife laughs. Well, it's no wonder that the family's laughing when the head of the home is laughing. I'm saying he should have deployed that divinity and said, if you're revealing me as the all-sufficient, almighty God of the universe, creator of all things seen and unseen, by whom all things consist, if you're revealing yourself to me, then I'm going to deploy that almighty God in my experience as I encounter various difficulties in life. I am going to stand firm in faith and deploy that. And I believe that God will be pleased when you do that. He won't see that as presumption. As long as you're seeking God and you're following the word and you're staying within the context of true divine revelation, then God is not going to be displeased with that. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us without doing this, without deploying the deeper divinity that comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, Without doing this, that is to say, without faith, it is impossible to please him. When you don't deploy the divinity, you are not pleasing God. For he that cometh to God must learn who he is. He that cometh to God must believe that he is Yahweh, that he is El Shaddai, that he is Jehovah. Tiskedu, he is Jehovah Jireth. He is the Lord that supplies everything. And he is indeed a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The question that was before Abraham's life, back in the end of Genesis chapter 12, was the following. Can El Shaddai provide bread in the wilderness? I don't know if Abraham was aware that that question was the looming question in the heavens by definition of the fact that he now belonged to God and God is involved in his entire life. Your food, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. I am the God of your entire person. I have saved you. I am the great I am of your life. That's who God wants you to know him as. And understand with me that the historical History of Abraham is there to teach you so you don't repeat his mistakes. When he faced something he didn't anticipate, it came to his life as a shock. It was a famine. It wasn't anything that I'm saying is frivolous. But the question that he should have asked himself, the question that the circumstances were asking him, is can El Shaddai provide bread in the wilderness? You say, well... He hadn't revealed himself as El Shaddai to Abraham yet. You just told me that. That comes 24 years later in Genesis 17. Well, actually, that's unfortunate 
that it had to come 24 years later in Genesis 17. What I'm trying to show to you is God was trying to reveal to him that he's El Shaddai in the most penetrating, powerful way possible through life circumstances. And that's what God is doing in us. The trial of our faith is to mature us so that we can become perfect and entire, lacking nothing. And if you find yourself in a difficult circumstance, instead of running in fear, the scriptures say, ask of God who will give to you wisdom liberally and he does not upbraid you he will meet your heart and he will guide you into all truth within his word and then he will tell you that I am faithful that I am the Lord who will meet this need it's interesting that many years later in Israel's history as recorded in Psalm 78 that question was still an open question for the Jewish people What question? The question whether or not God can provide bread in the wilderness. Do you remember with me that the journey of the Exodus included experiences of hunger as well as thirst? But let's just kind of focus in on hunger that God required that the Jewish people after the exodus, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, that God required them to trust Him to meet the needs, you know, the need of bread. And just getting to the point, in order to continue to work through this study, I want to give you the language of Psalm 78 to show you how it went with their hearts. Psalm 78 in verse 19 says that they spoke against God. After all these years, after all this work and after all this effort that God sovereignly supervised within the chosen family. You follow what I'm saying? We're going to be looking at Joseph's journey. We're going to be seeing the positive turn of events that occurred under Joseph's supervision. And to the extent that let's say the chosen family was bowing to Joseph's version of how you walk with God, things went well for them. And God was merciful to them to continue to keep them even in days of dwindling divinity within their habitation in Goshen. You see what I'm trying to say? In other words, they got down there for the wrong reasons in the first place, that is, selling the one who had the vision down into Egypt. And we'll look at that more fully, but it should be oriented in your mind. They're in Egypt for the wrong reasons, certainly to begin with, with Joseph. And they have to run to Egypt because they're not the faithful family they should be in the time of famine in Joseph's life. They then have all these experiences within that context. They get comfortable, more or less, within Goshen because, you know, they have the benefits and they have the provisions that the Nile produces and so on. So God has to make their experience uncomfortable, maybe a little bit like what is occurring now within Christendom at large. Uh, God has to make the experience a little more uncomfortable. A, A Pharaoh has to arise that doesn't favor God's people any longer. And affliction starts to visit their lives and they begin to cry out to God to bring deliverance. 
So what will happen if God brings deliverance to the church and they begin a journey back to the promised land where they should have been all along? What if God does bring deliverance to the churches? He's bringing deliverance to your life to make it to get to, for you to take an exodus out of depending on the world and to march as fast as you can to the promised land and trust your God there. But I will assure you of this, that he will test you along the way and he will test you with the very trials that your forefathers failed within. And that's exactly what he did with Israel. They were tested with having to trust God for bread in the Midbar in the wilderness. And their answer shows no spiritual development, no sustained spiritual development to speak of. After all these years, they spoke against God, verse 19. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? He smote the rock. He gave us water. God is revealing himself to them through these experiences to train them in a deeper divinity so that they can dismiss these doubts and stand firm in face of famine and fear. Is that not right? Is this not biblical history? Is this not the history we should be learning so that we're not doomed to repeat their mistakes? He gave us water and they go right on to say, can God give bread? Can he provide Meat in the wilderness. Well, you'll remember with me that God does provide manna and quail, but then he slays the fattest of them. Such profound lessons because God is, whether we understand this or not, God is so frequently meeting our needs and delivering us out of fixes, difficulties, because we cry out to him and he's so faithful. But are we learning, brothers and sisters? Are we getting deeper in our divinity so that we will stand firm in the face of fear and let God reveal him to us in the magnitude and the majesty of his name that we can really come to this place and sing, he is the great I am, and it just fills your heart and your soul because you've experienced how he meets all of your needs according to his glory in Christ Jesus. When Abraham and Sarah after him laughed, you know what God said? He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? In Jeremiah's day, even after all the experiences that Israel had, they were still not walking with the Lord. And Jeremiah says, oh Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your stretched out arm. Nothing is too hard for you. That is the voice of a believer, brothers and sisters. That's not the voice of a fanatic. That's the voice of somebody who is standing firm in the face of fear and agreeing with God and confessing his word and his truth and saying there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Just show me the promise. Show me the revelation of God's name in this situation and let me embrace that. Let me believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
You have to seek the Lord to understand these things. They don't come automatically. They don't come by just wandering around in Goshen or in the promised land for that matter. You have to take advantage of times like this when teaching is occurring and coming to your ears and God is seeking to reveal the depth of his divine power and person. And you've got to open your heart up to it and believe in it and then believe he is that rewarder and trust him and then experience it. How do you think it is that some of us and these various names that we can think about over the stretch of um, history have learned how faithful their God is? Are you listening to me, young people and everybody? You have to go through the trials like I have for 40 years. You have to go through the trials and stand firm in the face of fear and let God reveal himself to you. You see, they were still asking. What Abraham, I guess, asked and said, well, no, of course he can't supply bread in, in the wilderness. I have to go down to Egypt for that. Any idiot knows that. I mean, God supplied the Nile. That's the logical deduction, isn't it? God gave us the Nile. And the Nile will produce the bread. It would be presumption for me to stay put where God has placed me and just trust the Lord to meet that need now. But I think God disagrees with you. You have to deploy that deeper divinity. Can God supply bread in the wilderness? Or let's use the language that is more sort of befitting the Abrahamic era. Can El Shaddai, the one who can overwhelm anything that is opposing you, he can overwhelm it in his power. Amen. He can overwhelm it. You say the state is against me. The police are against me. The circumstances are against me. The virus is against me. How about believing that God can overwhelm those forces and manifest his faithfulness in your life? Is this craziness? Can God supply bread in a desert place where you can't even plant grain? Well, let's ask Philip. We're going to ask a few people whether or not God can supply bread. So let's start with Philip. In John chapter 6, we're going to ask Philip, and I'll tell you why, because Jesus asks Philip, which I guess you'll figure out with me once we see how this all works out, that Jesus was not in doubt about whether God can supply bread in a situation when it would have to be supernatural. So Genesis, excuse me, John chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come on to him, he said unto Philip, Hey, Philip, you remember Abraham? And you remember the children of Israel after the Exodus? I'm wondering if there's any spiritual development happening within the hearts of my people. I'm very serious. How about today? How about today? What if God asks us today? What if, what if you can't buy bread because... If you're not vaccinated, they won't let you into the grocery store, for example, something like that. What if you can't buy bread? The question becomes, can God supply bread when there's no normal means? Or you have to do something, just shrug your shoulders and say, I guess I got to take it. Got to run down to Egypt in order to get my supply. So he's asking Philip, Philip, do you remember Abraham's life? I, I have a question for you. From whence shall we supply bread for this multitude of 5,000 plus people? And he said this to test him. Is it not possible that famine happened in Abraham's life 
for similar reasons to test him. For God to ask him, hey, Abraham, from where are you going to get bread? I mean, our dear brethren up in Edmonton, Canada, Alberta, Canada, our dear brethren up there, they're having to answer the question, can God still be the head of the church when they fence off your building and don't allow you to meet when they're threatening you with fines and all the rest of it? Or do you have to run to some other country? I can't cover everything in one message. I understand there are times to flee. If the Lord says flee, we'll get to these things when we can. But that's, that's not where you start. Where you start is like Jesus said, go tell that fox. We're meeting this Sunday and next Sunday and the Sunday after until the Lord says otherwise. That's the answer, brothers and sisters. Now, if you're saying it with, with fleshly um, confidence and uh, uh, you know, belligerence and so on, well, the devil will be happy to knock that wind right out of your belly. But if you walk with God, if you have a deep divinity in your soul, if you are like Jeremiah and saying nothing is impossible with God, or you're like Gabriel speaking to Mary and saying with God, all things are possible, or Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If Satan hinders me here and there, I'm just going to get right back up and go forward. That's what we're talking about. So he asked that question knowing what he himself would do. We're told in verse 6 of John 6, he wanted to test Philip. Philip says, well, I don't know, you know, 200 denarii. That is a fairly large sum, by the way. A denarii is a silver coin that is equivalent to a day's wage. And when Philip looks out on the multitude, he says, if we had 200 men's wages... The sum of, the, of a day's wage of 200 men, it wouldn't be enough to buy bread for this multitude. Andrew, Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother, isn't doing much better than Philip. He says, well, we have five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? It's only Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Brothers and sisters, it shouldn't be that way now. Abraham should have been agreeing with God as he eventually did, as we'll see before we're done with this study. He eventually deployed the deeper divinity that God graciously brought him into acquaintance with and believed the Lord for the impossible. It is set forth before us as an example of faith. But it shouldn't be as it so often is that the only one believing within the churches is God, who's saying, I can't deny myself. If it's too marvelous for you, it's not marvelous in my eyes. Jesus said, make them sit down. I know where to get bread from God Almighty. Can God supply bread in the wilderness? Let us secondly ask David. Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear Him. That is, upon them that have a reverential understanding in a breadth and depth of their acquaintance with Almighty God, obtained through walking with the Lord, seeking the Lord, letting Him temper your spirit with a fast from the flesh and bring you into a new food that is the will of God, as Jesus says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. 
I do happen to remember as I was searching for how to express that, that the Laodiceans said they were rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing. Maybe what we really need is a fast from all the features of the flesh in this world. I'm quite certain we do. We need to, we need to be taken off of our dependencies. And maybe it's going to cause you to shake and quiver and, and be, just be sort of beside yourself. But there are divine resources for that sort of need as well. God will calm your soul if you wait on him. He will make you of good courage. Well, listen to the language. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death. Do you believe that literally? That God can deliver your soul from death and to keep you alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. Our soul doesn't run down to Egypt. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart shall rejoice in Him because we have, trust, we have trusted in His deeper divinity. We have trusted in His holy name. Let Thy mercy, O Yahweh, be upon us according as we hope in Thee. There's nothing wrong with hoping in the Lord. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. You have to stay put enough and ponder long enough that perhaps God will meet that need in order to stir up some hopes in the Lord. Let us ask David a second time. Psalm 37. The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. I find this particular psalm and its language and its promises particularly interesting because of the way it intersects again with Abraham's life. One of the most remarkable and commendable things about Abraham is that he believed the Lord and it was imputed onto him for righteousness. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, that Abraham entered into a righteous standing before God and believing the promise. If you can believe that God has imputed righteousness to you and that he has saved you from the wrath to come, well, that's a much more profound granting of mercy than any temporal need that you're going to face in your life. And I'm trying to say to you, the word is beckoning you to put these things together. Listen to the language again. The Lord knows the days of the upright, the days of the righteous. If you find yourself in a right standing before God through faith, with that, you should believe that the Lord knows you in whatever your need and your experience is. Just as Abraham was called into an inheritance, Psalm 37 says, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. That isn't coming to pass today. We are in evil times and the church is largely ashamed. It's time to say a few things, dear friends, about what we're seeing. The church is embarrassed to show itself and to show its Savior and to show its Lord and to declare 
his truth and to say that my God will meet all of our needs and let me show you how this looks. So can God supply food in the wilderness? David says, in the days of famine, you're going to be satisfied. Let's ask David one more time for a third witness. In verse 25 of Psalm 37, I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. God provided grain for the widow of Zarephath. God raised her son. There was a leper in Matthew chapter 8 that didn't ask the question, can you heal leprosy? His divinity was more than many sense him. He said, Lord, if you are willing, if I can get a promise from you, you can make me clean. You can heal leprosy. You can heal anything. That's faith. That's in the Bible. That's in the biblical history that you should read and learn from, lest you be doomed to repeat the failures of your fathers. Eventually, of course, Abraham did deploy this very sort of faith that we're talking about. He deployed this deeper divinity. We're told as much in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, we're told, Abraham, when he was tried relative to the offering up of Isaac, he went ahead and he offered him accounting, logizomai, reasoning. What? That God was able. Are you hearing this language? Dear brothers and sisters, if you think it's a hard thing that God did in Abraham's life and we're reading it in a rather harsh and overly critical manner by saying that when Abraham faced famine and fled to Egypt, that was not faith and we are to learn to avoid those steps, then you please tell me how it was that God could also confront his life at this early stage of human experience with God with the command to offer his only son upon Mount Moriah and expect him to respond in faith to that. And if you believe the sacred history, you believe there was a man back some 2,000 years ago who faced that in his own experience. And he had to reason within his heart and believe that the one who revealed himself as El Shaddai there in Genesis chapter 17, he can overwhelm anything. If God has called me to do this, then I'm just going to simply be faithful and march forward and obey his word. If God says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, keep the Sabbath holy. Keep it separated unto God. If the world tries to take that sacred day away from you, you protect it. Don't go hide in your church. Say to the foxes, we are going to obey God. If Abraham was called to have that kind of faith as it relates to the offering up of his child, and we believe that that's an example, then why don't we apply the same sort of steps in our own experiences? Abraham had to reason within his heart, given the revelation that God had given him, and said, 
He is able to overcome us. He overcome this. He is able to raise him from the dead. As is said in Romans chapter 4 and verse 17, also relating to Abraham. Abraham believed that God can call those things that be not as though they are. 